Let's pray. Just want to make sure everyone was awake. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity again that we have to come together, the freedom that we have in this country to assemble and to study your word together. Lord, I just pray that your word would be spoken in truth today and that as we look at another one of your Ten Commandments, that you would open our eyes to how much we need you when we study these and how, to see how we failed and, Lord, but also then to motivate us to want to do better. We want to do better out of service to you. Uh, not because we can repay you for the salvation you've given to us, but just because we want to do this out of a joyful response of what you've done for us. Lord, just pray that you would uh, discipline our minds, help us to focus, and help us to uh, pay attention to what you have to tell us from your word today. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, today... We're again continuing with the Ten Commandments, and you can turn to Exodus 20 where we find all the Ten Commandments listed. And we are on, as the board tells me behind me, the Ninth Commandment. And that's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. The Ninth Commandment says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, this is a commandment we're going to be looking at for the next two weeks, and it's, it's a fairly big commandment. Um, the way that we're going to approach looking at it, okay, the way we're going to approach looking at it is first I want to this morning give sort of an introduction to the commandment, talk about its scope, talk about the kinds of things that is in view, um, with this commandment, and then I want to look, as we normally do, at, first of all, at the, the positive injunctions of the commandment. What it's, what's, it's requiring us to do. What are we supposed to do? And, of course, we'll follow the catechism like we always do with that. And then next week, I think next week is going to be really exciting, right? Because next week, we're going to, first of all, look at the, the negative injunctions of the commandment, what's forbidden. And then in light of what's forbidden, we need to address a special issue with relation to this commandment. And I think you could probably figure out what that special issue is without me having to say much. But in a commandment that, that forbids bearing false witness or forbids lying, is there ever a situation where lying is permissible? That's the question, right? Is, is there ever a position where we can say, well, you know, in this situation, it's okay to lie and to not tell the truth? Or in, this, in any situation, is it never permitted? to lie and are we always required to tell the truth that's why I say next week is going to be kind of exciting right because we're going to spend most of the time dealing with that question because it's a big question and it's one that's very hotly debated among Christians and I'm not going to show you my cards yet Grant was trying to get it out of me on Wednesday night what I was going to say about that not not going to show my cards yet all right we're going to talk about it next week this week we want to look at an introduction to this commandment and then talk about what's required in it okay so that's what we're going to do Again, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is the ninth commandment. And I, I remember when I was young, I, I'm, when I say young, okay, I'm not talking right now. Some of you would say I'm young now. Uh, I'm talking like we young, right? Five years old or something like that. All right, young enough so that my younger brother Hunter, who's a few years younger than me, was something like two or three at the time. And at that time, my parents were, had just moved on to a new farmstead 
and so they were uh, raising buildings and things, and Dad had an old-fashioned barn raising on one weekend, and a bunch of people from the church had come over, and they were, on the Saturday, putting up a new machine shed, putting up the frame for it. And I was really young. I remember seeing it and thinking it was really cool. And so my brother and I went out there. I was like five. He was like two or three or something. We went out to this construction site to watch them work. There were tools all over the place, you know, saws and hammers and whatever else. And there was this long, thin chain on the ground next to the building. And we thought it'd be fun to take this chain and play tug of war. I was a couple years older than him, so it was really easy for me to want to do that because I could easily win. So we get this chain and we're all you know playing tug of war or whatever and I decided to exert my strength as the older brother and quickly yank it out of his hands and win what I didn't count on though was that my pull was kind of strong more stronger than I thought and it caused that chain to flip back and send it straight into my face (laughs) and that hurt okay and I learned my lesson there. You don't pull chains that way. It's a bad idea. I also learned my lesson you don't pull a tractor out with a chain because that same thing can happen and you can like chop the tractor in half almost doing that. But anyway, I had this nasty gash on my face. It explains a lot of the issues that I have today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I had this gash on my face. We go back to the house and my mom asks, what on earth happened to you? And I have no idea what came over me. I have no idea what came over me. It's like this rush of sin, almost. And I said, my brother hit me on the head with a metal wrench. (laughs) Not exactly what happened. And, of course, my brother was severely punished, and he was like two or three at the time, so it's not like he can intelligibly defend himself, you know. So he gets punished, and then later, you know, a few weeks later, the truth comes out that that is not what happened. And I got severely punished, and rightfully so. But I remember what my mom said to me at the time when she found out. She said, Levi, don't you know that the ninth commandment forbids lying? Don't you know that the ninth commandment says you shall not lie? And actually, what she said at the time was the eighth commandment. Because I grew up Lutheran, so they number the commandments differently. We'll talk about that when we get to the tenth commandment. Uh, But what she said was that commandment says you shall not lie. And that's usually, in, for most of us, what we think about when we think of the Ninth Commandment. We think about lying, of intentionally saying something that is not true, or intentionally deceiving someone by withholding truth. Right? That's normally what we think about when we think about the commandment, you shall not bear false witness. It's just forbidding lying. But you know what's interesting is that for ancient Israel... The commandment, you shall not bear false witness, is not primarily talking about lying. Now, it is. That's, that, by extension, that's what it means. But primarily, the language, you shall not bear false witness, it's not necessarily just about telling any kind of falsehood. That's not what it's specifically after. What it is specially highlighting, and our catechism recognizes this too, but what it was specially highlighting for the ancient Israelites is that this commandment primarily forbids being a false witness in a court. Okay? Now, it does forbid lying. I'm not saying it doesn't. But what it has particularly in view is being a false witness in the courts. And the reason for that is this, that in ancient Israel, um, if you think about the court system, 
in ancient Israel, right? You've got to understand it was a little different than the court system we have today. Now, there, there was a judge and, and jury and that sort of thing, but in our court system today, we have all kinds of clever ways that we can figure out whether someone is guilty or not. We can use fingerprints, right? Policemen will go to a crime scene and detectives will, you know, dust for fingerprints and they can figure out, you know, if there's a convict who's loose and he's, you know, his fingerprints match with whatever. So we can use fingerprints, we can use technology that way. We have detectives who are specially trained to analyze situations and interview people and try to get to the bottom of the crime. You know, we've got uh, lawyers. Lawyers are people who are, who are trained to try to argue the case of the person that they're defending. We have all kinds of ways that we operate in a court system today besides just the judge and the jury. But for ancient Israel, they didn't, they didn't dust for fingerprints. They didn't have detectives, per se. They didn't have lawyers. That's a great world to live in right there, a world without lawyers. But I'm just kidding. If any of you are a lawyer, I don't mean to offend you. But uh, they didn't have lawyers. They didn't have all this extra stuff that we have. And so what that means then is that a witness in an Israeli court of law in ancient Israel was the primary way that someone was condemned of a crime, was condemned and convicted of a crime. And so what that means then is that witnesses were really, really important. And particularly, witnesses were the central importance in a crime. Think about just the trial of Jesus, for example. Jesus goes before the council, and Luke can't remember exactly which chapter, but he goes before the council of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And witnesses are brought forward to, con- to convict him. And somebody says, hey, you know, I-, I heard this Jesus, and he was teaching that he'll break down the temple, he'll destroy the temple, and then he'll rebuild it in three days. Now, in Maybe Luke left it out, but I don't remember reading in that account that the Pharisees said, oh, interesting. Bring me the transcript of Jesus' sermon where he said that. Prove to me that that's what he said. Show me the recording. Because they didn't have recordings, but just putting it in modern terms. Right? The Pharisees didn't check the facts. It was entirely based upon what the witnesses said. And indeed, we read that Luke says that the witnesses were giving false testimonies about Jesus. So witnesses were the central, the central component of the judicial court system in ancient Israel. They were the ones who basically determined the case with their word. And that's why, if you turn to Deuteronomy 19, that's why the Old Testament has much to say about witnesses in a court of law. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Look at what um, Moses prescribes here through the Spirit. He says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Because witnesses were so important for for the Israeli judicial system, you needed more than one witness even to bring a charge against someone. You had to have two or three witnesses at least. That's because they were so central. And look at the next verse. Verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, 
Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's a steep penalty for false witnesses here. People who bring a bad testimony, a lying testimony to the courts. They are to be given the same punishment that they were trying to give to someone else through their false testimony. And why is that? Is it to set an example? You shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest, the rest of the witnesses, the rest of the people of Israel, shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil. Okay? So there's a steep penalty for false witnesses. That's why bearing false witness made it into the top ten moral laws that God has for his people of all time, namely the Ten Commandments. We have a law about of being a false witness. Now, what I'm saying is that the judicial system for Israel was not like it was today, or not like it is today, really, for us as Americans. For us as Americans, our judicial system is not at the center of our everyday life. And what I mean by that is this. We don't go to the courthouse every day and participate in some trial. We certainly are called to jury duty occasionally, but that doesn't happen that often. I mean, we don't go there every other month or anything. Most of us just have a, a good idea of the court system because we watch it on TV, right? But not because we actually have firsthand experience all the time. We don't go there all the time. It's not part of our daily life. For the Israelites, it was. Because the courtroom for the ancient Israelites was in the gatehouse of the city. Every day when they walked out outside the city to get water from the stream or to go check their fields or to go trading or to do anything, every time they walked out of their city, they walked by some trial that was going on, something with witnesses. Every single day, the courthouse was backed up with court cases for all kinds of different things. And it was a reminder to them every time they walked through of the importance of being a true witness. That is, this commandment was designed for ancient Israel to tell them, to remind them continually for generations and generations to come of the centrality of being a people of truth. The centrality of being a people of truth. Because guess what happens if you have a court system with a bunch of false witnesses? Justice can't be done. If you have a people who are not a truthful people, you can't have order, and you can't have society, and life doesn't work. Think about it. Let's say you go to the bank and you deposit $2 into your account, and you had $2 in your account already. How much are you going to have after you deposit? This is not a hypothetical question. You can answer this. Four. <laughs> right. Four. Somebody say three. 
No, I think I heard four. Right, four. You'd have four dollars in there. But what if the bank said, no, I'm sorry. In our bank, two plus two equals three. You wouldn't be banking there, would you? You wouldn't be banking there at all. No one would bank there. Why? Because the bank has to function on the basis of truth. Absolute truth. That two plus two always equals four. If it doesn't, you can't have a bank. The same thing with society. If we don't have truth, if we don't have people of truth, society doesn't work. It falls apart. And so this commandment then is not just talking about the judicial courtroom, although that is what it is focused on. But the broader picture, the reason why it's focused on that is because God wants his people to be a people of truth. To be a people committed to the truth. To be a people walking in truth. In fact, look at the Gospel of John. You don't have to turn there, but just hypothetically, look at the Gospel of John. Uh, Pastor is preaching through that in his sermon series. And one of the things that we are going to see as he continues through that is that John, in a certain sense, puts a kind of searchlight on the sanctity of truth. Jesus makes a lot of statements about truth in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When speaking to God, he says, God, or Father, sanctify my people in your truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say your word is true, although it is. He says your word is truth itself. That's more powerful. The, the author of the Gospel of John, namely the Apostle John, in his third epistle, in, in verse 4, he says, this is a, a, a verse that parents love to put on their walls next to pictures of their children. Right, it says in verse 4, um, I'm drawing a blank on it here, I need to find it, there we go, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now what John is talking about there is that they walk in the Christian faith that they walk with Christ. But instead of just saying they walk in the Christian faith or they walk with Christ, he says they walk in truth. So in the Bible, the entire Christian faith is characterized as being truth, the truth. It's a, it's a curious way of summarizing all of Christianity, just saying it's the truth. And we as God's people are required to walk in truth, to be people of truth. And that's what this commandment is getting at in the big picture. Because it's not just saying, don't lie. It's not just saying, don't bear false witness in a court. But positively, it is saying, be people of truth. Be people who keep your word. Be people who tell the truth. Be people who can be depended on. Be people who preserve the truth. These are all the things that it's requiring of us. This is why James, in chapter 5 of his epistle, in verse 12, says, But above all, my brothers, above all, everything I've said so far in this whole epistle, chapter 5 is the last chapter. We're getting to the end of James here. And James says, Above all, everything I've said so far, above all, my brothers, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be people of truth. That's what this commandment is teaching us in the big picture. It's not just about lying, 
although it, do, it does forbid that. It's not just about bearing false witness, though it does forbid that. It's about being people of truth. That's why it's there. That's the principle behind the commandment. And so as we proceed now through what is what this commandment is requiring of us, we want to keep that at the forefront. And even in our Westminster Larger Catechism, the first thing listed that is required of us in this commandment is the preserving and the promoting of truth between man and man, between person and person. And what that means then is that that is sort of the summary of what the commandment requires of us, and everything else that our catechism puts down as required in this commandment is simply flowing from that. So the first thing is preserving and promoting truth between man and man. That's the big central thing this commandment is requiring of us. Zechariah 8.16 says, these are the things that you shall do. You want to know what God wants you to do? Here's what you need to do. Speak, every man, the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. We are to speak the truth to our neighbors. We're not to be people characterized by falsehoods and exaggerations and even lies and slander. We're to be people characterized as people who speak truth because we're to walk in the truth. So, big picture, we preserve and promote truth between man and man. All right, That's the big picture. Now here, we're going to get to all these little things underneath that. How do we preserve and promote the truth between each other? So, second thing, or really the first thing here, how do we do this? Promoting the good name of our neighbor. Promoting the good name of our neighbor. So, this one is a little bit, you've got to understand what it's getting at here. Because you can, it can be like, okay, this, re- this commandment requires us to promote truth. I'm required to promote the good reputation of my neighbor. What if my neighbor has a bad reputation? Am I supposed to manipulate the facts and try to, try to make him seem better than he is because I'm required to always make the reputation of someone else greater? Well, no, it says to promote the good name of your neighbor. It assumes that your neighbor has a good reputation. And one of the biggest problems that we have when it comes to breaking someone's reputation is that normally reputations are broken not by someone's actual bad deeds, although that does happen, but reputations are most often broken by lies and slander and exaggeration and the highlighting of the good things and disposing of, or the highlighting of the bad things and then the ignoring of the good things about them. That's most often how reputations are destroyed. And so we as Christians then, when we see someone with a good reputation, we're not called to tear that down. We're called to promote it and build it up insofar as we're telling the truth when we're doing that. Right? We don't make up things about people to make them seem better. But we promote the good name of our neighbor because it's the truth if they have a good name. We're not called to tear them down. This is, this is one of, the reason why it's here, guys. The reason why this is here is because, again, like I said, reputations are most often broken down by lies, not by the truth. And as Christians, we want to be far from that. There, there was a particular person in uh, the church in which I grew up who was very, very skilled in knowing exactly what to say to rip someone down or to build someone up specifically for her own purposes. Very clever. You'd never know it unless you were paying attention. 
But we as Christians don't want to do that. We build people up not because it has some it fulfills some kind of agenda on our part. We build people up because it is the truth that we're saying about them that builds them up, that builds up their reputation. Okay, we build up the reputation because it's the truth, assuming that it's the truth when we're talking about them. Okay? I know this is kind of like all over the place here, but this is an important principle. Reputations are most often broken down by lies, not by the truth. So we want to do the opposite of that. We speak the truth about people and build them up. Okay, so we preserve the good name of our neighbor. Secondly, we preserve and defend our own good name. So we're not just doing that for other people, but we're doing it for ourselves. A lot, now I know I've heard before, and I think you probably heard this too, and I, I, I don't know if I've talked about it here or not, or maybe that was with the youth. We're often told that we are not supposed to care what other people think about us. And on the surface, that is true to some extent. Right? Because if people are thinking poorly about us because we follow Christ, well, then we shouldn't care about that, right? We're going to follow Christ regardless of whether someone looks down upon us for that or not. But on the other hand, the scripture doesn't call us to utterly not care about what anyone thinks of us for any reason. We are called to care about what people think of us because we are beacons for Christ in this world. We are his ambassadors. We are people that point other people to Jesus. And so we are to, first of all, follow God's law in our life so that we are a good people that have a good reputation. And then secondly, we are to maintain our good reputation. And we maintain it by silencing people who are lying about us, by making sure that the, that the truth is in people's <laughs> minds, that people know the truth about us, and by following God's law in general so that we are people who are characterized by being good, lawful people. Because we are beacons for Christ. We point people to him. And we are terrible beacons if we are living sinful lifestyles but claiming to be Christians. So we've got to guard our own reputations too, not just the reputations of other people. And this is where we can sometimes fall off the other side of the horse. Because sometimes we care too much about what other people think, and we actually end up lying about ourselves to build up our own reputations. That's another thing we can do, where we fail to recognize the sanctity of truth here. We are building up our reputations insofar as it's the truth in what we say about ourselves that builds up our reputation. But we do not lie in order to build up our reputation. You see the difference there? That's, that's the fine line we need to find here. We, we preserve the truth, but we don't make stuff up to up our own reputation. Okay, That's the two principles here. Three, what else is required? Appearing and standing for the truth from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully. I want to go through each of those individually because they're really important. First of all, we stand for the truth. That is, we stand for things that are true from the heart. You remember what I talked about uh, the last couple of weeks, what we, what we looked at with regard to the Hebrew concept of the heart. The proof text for this is, is uh, from the Old Testament. So when the, our uh, catechism is talking about the heart, it's not talking about the way that us Americans normally conceive of the heart. For us, when we talk about the heart, we're talking about usually our emotions or our affections. And that's not primarily what the Hebrews in the Old Testament were talking about with reference to the heart. They were talking about 
the intellect and the will when they refer to the heart. The decision-making faculty that makes up who we are. That's the Hebrew heart, the metaphorical meaning. And so when our catechism says that we are to stand for the truth from the heart, that means we're to stand for the truth not simply on the outside, but on the inside, in our minds. That we don't conjure up falsehoods about people to make ourselves feel better or conjure up falsehoods about other people to use as weapons to battle down someone else's reputation so we can build ourselves up, right? We stand for the truth on the inside. We make sure that we are thinking true thoughts, that we're not making things up about people in our minds. We're thinking true thoughts, and we desire the truth. We desire the real truth to be known, and we work towards that. So we stand for the, for the truth from the mind. Secondly, we stand for the truth sincerely, this is kind of goes hand in hand with this last one, but it basically means we stand for the truth truly. We don't just try to appear like we care about truth. Lots of people do this, right? You probably detected people who do this. They try on the outside to make people think that they're truthful people and that they don't lie. But on the inside, they aren't really. They're not sincere. They're being dishonest on the outside to make you think something about their inside that's not there. And we don't want to do that. Because we want to be people who stand for the truth truly from the heart and sincerely. We really actually care about truth. When we talk about the whole reputation thing before, it's not the reputation itself that we care about. It's the truth about the reputation that we care about. Right? That's, that's the principle there. So we stand for the truth from the heart, sincerely, means really, truly. And we stand for the truth freely, that is, without inhibiting it, without binding it. We do it all the time, everywhere. We stand for the truth clearly. Number four, we stand for the truth clearly. I don't know if this was a thing for any of you guys growing up, or if this is something your kids do or not, but when I was young, again this young, not young now, uh, it was very common for kids on the playground or when we were doing sports or whatever to think that they could cross their fingers like this and then they could say out of their mouths whatever they wanted and somehow it wasn't lying because they had their fingers crossed. And it was very common for these kids to try to have their hand behind their back with their fingers crossed and then spew all kinds of lies and then somehow it wasn't technically wrong. So you were always like, if, you, if someone was talking and you saw them with their hand behind their back, you'd have to run around them and make sure that they didn't have their fingers crossed behind their back to see if they were lying or not. Now this kid who is doing this, and kids, because there's a lot of them, may seem on the outside as if they're speaking truth because they're saying it and they're very sober about it but they're not being clear about the actual truth because they have their fingers crossed behind their back. They're not saying everything. It's it's, it's a very weird way of being unclear about what's true and what's not true. What it is is it's deceiving through lack of information. An example of this for adults, the adult version of crossing the fingers, would be a a man and a wife at at their house. Someone comes to the door and asks to see the husband. The wife answers the door husband's upstairs, he doesn't want to talk to this person. 
And the wife says, oh, he's not here. And then the guy leaves. And then the wife says, in the kitchen. He's not here in the kitchen. But what she really meant, well, that's what she meant, that he was not there in the kitchen. But she said it, just, he's not here. So that the man at the door would understand, oh, he's not here in the house at all, which is not true. So you see what the woman did there. She said something that, if you understand it a certain way, is not a lie, but if you understand it another way, is a lie. And she did it on purpose to deceive the man. Okay? That's what I call an adult crossing their fingers. Okay? It's not standing for the truth clearly. It's simply being deceptive through something that looks like truth on the outside, but the intention of it is to deceive. And she had no right to do that. That's wrong. That's not standing for the truth in a clear way. And so that is something that we as Christians want to do positively, is stand for the truth clearly, not be deceptive with the way that we word things in order to deceive someone because we know they're going to take our words in a way that we didn't really mean. That's deceptive. I know... Uh, do I have time for this story? Okay, yeah, I do. So there was... Um, I, I know someone who's in sales. And I hate to pick on salespeople because they've got a hard job. But sales is one of those situations where it's very easy to break this commandment, right? When you're trying to sell people stuff. And this particular salesman, he is head of sales, and he has a uh, person underneath him, so like the associate of sales or something. And one of his strategies when he goes out to sell something is he goes to the customer's house, it's door-to-door sales, goes to the customer's house, and he sends his associate in first. And he tries to get the associate to win the sale. And if the associate doesn't win the sale, he comes back, the head guy, comes back two days later and says, hey, I understand that my associate so-and-so was here the other day. Did he offend you in some way? Did he hurt your feelings in some way? Did he make a mistake? You know, he's kind of new around here, so let me just try to make things better. And almost always he gets the sale out of that. That's a kind of a deceptive manipulation, right? It may be sort of true that this associate is not as good at selling things as the head guy. And it may be true that he hasn't been at the business for as long as the head guy. But it's clearly an example of a little bit of deception going on here. It's not a clear stance on truth. And so we as Christians don't want this, okay? We are to be people of the truth. If we're going to sell stuff, we've got to tell people the truth. Let's not try to deceive and trick. Let's just say it how it is, okay? So we, that's what our catechism is calling us to, to stand for the truth clearly, not to devise clever ways of manipulating around the truth and getting people to think one thing when we're saying another thing. We don't want any part of that. So that's uh, number four. And then the fifth, to stand for the truth fully, to stand for the truth fully. And this is kind of what it's like when you go to the court and you're going to be uh, uh, bring your, wit- your testimony and be a witness in our court today. And you come into the court and you put your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's, the, that's what you have to swear if you're going to be a witness. What are they saying? I'm not going to hide back certain facts that are pertinent to the case that you have a right to know about. I'm not going to tell you part of the truth. Only a portion of the truth that you have a right to hear. 
I'm going to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And this is where we need to recognize another principle. That we're going to talk about more of this next week when we're looking at what's forbidden. But this doesn't mean, our catechism here does not mean that we are required to tell everybody every single thing that we know about something. Okay? This doesn't mean that if a pastor counsels someone who's going through marriage issues, that he is then required to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to everyone in the congregation about the situation. Okay? That is not at all what's being discussed here. Why? Because the congregation has no right to know what's going on in this marriage if it's in a confidential counseling example. So when it, what it means is to tell the truth fully here, tacitly is assumed it means that the person you're talking to has a right to know what you're telling them. To tell the truth wholly to a court as a witness, the reason you do that is because the court has a right to know that stuff. You're saying when you come forward, I'm going to tell you everything that I know that's pertinent to this case because it is your right to know these things. And it's my duty as a witness to tell you these things. But it doesn't mean we tell everyone everything we know all the time. But we do, as Christians, as far as we can, to those whom it's due, we tell the truth in its wholeness. And we don't try to deceive by lack of information. Okay? So that's what's required of us, to tell the truth that way. So just to sum that all up, we tell the truth, or we stand for the truth, from the heart that is on the inside, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully. Few more things here. What else is required? We speak only the truth, particularly in matters of judgment and in all things. So like, even our catechism recognizes this commandment bears particular emphasis on the judicial courts. But then it also adds, we tell the truth in everything. Okay? So we speak only the truth. Um, next, charitable esteem of our neighbors. Well, how does this apply to a commandment about bearing false witness? Why is it required that we have charitable esteem toward our neighbors? Well, it's because this battles the temptation to lie about their reputations. If we're going to lie about someone's reputation and try to tear them down, it's normally as a result of bad feelings toward them. So we battle that by harboring loving feelings toward our neighbors. Again, when we're talking about what's required in this commandment, we're getting at what is going to combat us breaking it. That's why this is required, according to the Catechism. A couple more. Um, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in our neighbor's good name. Again, to combat the tearing down of our neighbor's good name. Um, being ready to receive a good report. And being unwilling to admit of an evil report. That doesn't mean we never accept criticism about someone. It's just saying, as a general whole, we as Christians are not happy to hear bad things about other people. But rather, we rejoice with them when we hear good things about them. Just as a general life rule, ready to receive a good report and unwilling to admit of an evil report. We're not quick to assume that someone's doing something bad. Because when we hear about someone doing something bad it is often just a result of exaggeration or slander. It can be true. But just as a general rule, we want to be quick to question bad things and accept good things. Right? That's just a general rule. It's not an absolute. Three more. Discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Naturally, if we're 
going to be people of the truth, what is required in this commandment is to discourage people who like to tell tall tales, who like to flatter other people by exaggerating the truth or simply making up good things about them so that they can, you know, get them on their side, flatter them in some way, and discourage slanderers. Slanderers can be people who take something legitimately bad about someone and share it around to ruin their reputation. Or slanderers can be people who take something that is questionable, puff it up to something that sounds even worse, and then go around and spread that around to ruin someone's reputation. So we want to discourage those. That, that's, what, that's basically what this whole mourning thing is all about here, is we're going through and looking at what's required in this commandment. It's all things that we can use to, to discourage slanderers and talebearers. Because we want to be people of the truth. We want to speak the truth. Sometimes speaking the truth... Get this too. Sometimes speaking the truth does hurt someone's reputation. But we should never be quick to do that. Um, Two more. Keeping of lawful promises. This is the one we've been waiting for, really. This is very clearly something required for us. If we make a promise to someone and we break that promise... Well, we lie to them. We also steal from them, if you remember from our discussion on the commandment about stealing. But we lie to them. We said, I will do this. I promise to do this. And then we don't do it. We lie to them. So that is... So keeping, keeping promises is required in this commandment. We keep our lawful promises to people. And then finally, this one's kind of a catch-all. Studying and practicing whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. This comes from Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there be any virtue or be any praise, think about these things. We study and practice whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. We dwell on those things. We don't dwell on the negatives. We dwell on the positives. Why? Because that's what's going to make us better people. Now, you should see there's some gray area in all the things we've been talking about today. I hope you've seen that. I hope you're thinking, I don't always know exactly how to apply some of these things. Because we're, we're told in our catechism to quickly accept a good report and to not be quick to accept a bad report. And we're thinking to ourselves, well, wait a second here. What if someone actually is doing something wrong? That's a good question. That's why these are characterized here as general principles. These are not absolutes. We are quick to accept a good report. And we are quick to deny a false report unless they're confirmed as true. And when they're confirmed as true, we accept them and we deal with them appropriately. But the reason our catechism is getting at this is because oftentimes false reports are... Sorry, oftentimes bad reports are simply false because they're a means to tear somebody down unlawfully. And we we want to guard against that and not be so quick to to believe bad things that are said about people because we want to be people of the truth. We want to make sure what's being said is true. Now, just as we close here, 
we as Christians, if you remember the principle we talked about at the beginning this morning, if we as Christians can be people characterized as people who walk in truth, as 3 John verse 4 says, if we as Christians can be people characterized by walking in the truth, how great is it that that points to the one whom we follow? Christ himself, who keeps his promises perfectly, and who is himself the way, the life, and the truth. See, we are people of the truth. We want to seek to be people characterized as people who love the truth. Not because it makes ourselves look better. That's a selfish reason. But because we are people who are supposed to reflect who Jesus is. And if we as God's people are characterized by, people who, by, by being people who don't love the truth, and by breaking our promises, and by not keeping our word, then what does that say to the world around us when they look at us and they say, oh, those Christians don't keep their word. How can I trust Jesus when they fall up? It's a high responsibility for us. And we need to recognize we've got that responsibility, but we also need to recognize we're never going to do that perfectly, are we? Because we as human beings are characterized by being people who are not of the truth. We constantly manipulate the truth to serve our own benefits. Whether we're a salesman or not, we all do this. And we want to watch this. We want to be people who are of the truth. We want to take this commandment seriously. We shall not bear false witness and that we shall preserve the truth because it is so important. Both to ourselves and our relationship with Jesus and to the watching world who's looking to see how well we represent our promise-keeping God. Okay? We'll talk more about this commandment next week. We'll look at what's forbidden and then look at that special issue question. Let's pray, and then we'll be done here. Uh, Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that... Uh, You'd help us to understand this commandment, Lord. There's a lot of there's a lot of difficult issues here. Uh, Lord, just pray that as we think about this this week, and as we continue to study it next week, Lord, that uh, that you would help us to see what it is that you require of us. Lord, help us to be people of truth, whatever that looks like. Help us to be people characterized by keeping our word. Because, Lord, we know that you always keep your word, and we want to be like you. We want to shine for you. We want to reflect you to the people around us. Help us to do that. Help us not to be slanderers or talebearers or flatterers or any of those kinds of things or those people who, who twist and distort truth to serve their own interests. But, Lord, help us to be people who stand for your truth. And Lord, make us passionate about that. Help us to turn to you when we fail. Help us to seek your grace and remember what you did for us on Calvary, that you you paid the penalty for every time we broke this commandment and that you actually fulfilled it perfectly yourself. Lord, encourage us in this and prepare us now to worship you in the service and to hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.